Welcome back to A Justice Seeking Church, the report of the Walking with Micah project. I'm Rachel Lampard. Thank you for joining me. This is part five of eight and covers section three of the report, which introduces the principles for justice. This section first introduces the idea of principles before looking at what they are for and then going into each of them in greater theological depth. All Bible quotations are taken from the anglicised New Revised Standard Version. The principles for justice are anchored in what we know of our just God and suggest what this means for us to be justice-seeking. Many Christian churches have a tradition of social principles or a body of theological teaching on justice. The Catholic Church, for example, has a body of Catholic social teaching that originated in modern times in 1891 with the encyclical letter Rerum Novarum. Since then, new encyclicals, such as Pope Francis's Laudato Si on the environment and Fratelli Tutti on solidarity, have refined the Church's teaching and shaped its response to the modern world. The Catholic Aid Agency, CAFOD, summarises the core principles of of Catholic social teaching as dignity, solidarity, the common good, the option for the poor, peace, care for creation and the dignity of work and participation. The Worldwide Anglican Communion produces material to support five marks of mission – the third, fourth and fifth of which are to respond to human need by loving service, to reform unjust structures of society, to challenge violence of every kind and pursue peace and reconciliation, and to strive to safeguard the integrity of creation and sustain and renew the life of the earth. The World Communion of Reformed Churches engages in extensive teaching and campaigning on justice including the 2004 Accra Confession on Economic and Environmental Justice. The Baptist World Alliance has a commission on racial, gender and economic justice and several other commissions as part of a religious freedom, human rights and justice network. Quaker Faith and Practice is a collection of witness and wisdom, consisting of extracts and quotes reflecting the breadth of Quaker theology. As well as describing Quaker governance, it offers testimony on social responsibility and peace. The World Methodist Council has a social justice committee with a current focus on economic justice or injustice and has approved a World Methodist Social Affirmation. The United Methodist Church, a global Methodist church based in the United States of America, has a series of social principles, beginning with an affirmation of faith, from which detailed position statements follow, speaking to, quote, to the human issues in the contemporary world from sound biblical and theological foundation. They are a call to faithfulness and are intended to be instructive and persuasive in the best prophetic spirit. The General Board of Church and Society, the United Methodist Church, has been through a process over a number of years and involving hundreds of people from around the church globally to develop proposed new social principles that will come to the next United Methodist Church General Conference. Other partner churches have similarly developed theological approaches to current human or global challenges, 
For example, the Pacific churches have reweaving the ecological mat or the theological statements of the Methodist Church in Cuba on children and the family. As shown in section two of this report, the Methodist Church in Britain has made theological statements related to specific social or justice issues, and from these have been developed positions or activities. What is offered to the conference through these principles for justice is different. We recommend the adoption of six simple principles, developed through listening, conversations and with accompaniers from the Faith and Order Committee. These principles offer a description of what underpins our beliefs for us as Methodists about a God of justice. Each is followed by what this principle means for us if we are to be justice-seeking. Whilst these principles will be recognised by many Christians, they are proposed humbly as emerging from our own reception of scripture, experience, tradition and reason. We recommend the adoption of these principles for justice. God made humans in the image of God, each worthy of equal value and dignity. The search for justice entails treating others with respect and may involve reclaiming lost worth. God desires the flourishing of creation and human community within it. The search for justice does not diminish or limit the flourishing of others, but seeks to enable it. God consistently shows a bias to people experiencing poverty and those who are excluded. The search for justice must attend to those who live in poverty and those who are marginalised in other ways as a priority. God entrusts those in power with a special responsibility for upholding justice. Those seeking justice will encourage and challenge those with power to fulfil their vocation. God calls all people and nations actively to work for peace and justice, liberation and transformation. It is never just someone else's responsibility. We all have a part to play. God calls us to live in hope and in ways that reflect God's character and the pattern of God's kingdom. God calls us to live in hope and in ways that reflect God's character and the pattern of God's kingdom. Thus seeking justice involves honesty and truth and may demand protest and resistance, restitution, forgiveness, reconciliation and ultimately transformation. So what are the principles for? The hope behind these principles is threefold. Firstly, in turbulent times, these principles are anchored in what we understand of God's just character. They are not a panacea telling us everything we need to think or know in every situation. They do not mean that we no longer need to think or pray or confer with each other. Instead, the principles are a powerful expression of what keeps us rooted as we wrestle with situations of injustice. Secondly, the hope is that these principles will help us to articulate our call to justice, both inside and beyond the Methodist Church, in ways that are clear and compelling. Thirdly, the hope is that the principles will be tools to support discernment, individually and collectively, as we continually face new challenges of injustice. Supported by the deeper reflections further on in this report, 
they will be a resource for us as members, as church leaders, as groups such as JPIT or the Central Finance Board, when we are called to respond in word or action to specific issues. If these principles are agreed by the conference, the intention is to provide materials such as a Bible study or small group resources and toolkits to enable Methodists to engage with them. There may be times when one of the principles might speak more to us than others. However, they should not be cherry-picked. Instead, they should work in dialogue one with another, and that interaction should help us to go deeper. Above all, the principles are not to be received passively. They are for us to work out in community with each other, together, through our discipleship and discernment, as part of our vocation for justice in this time and place. Our engagement with the principles comprises part of our accountability to each other, as well as to God. At the core of these principles is God's love. John Wesley recognised that love was the most important gift and motivator. In his sermon on the Catholic spirit, he wrote, Though we cannot think alike, may we not love alike? May we not be of one heart, though we are not of one opinion? Without all doubt, we may. Adopting these principles does not mean that Methodists will have all have to agree on each issue or vote the same way in every election. We all have different lenses and experiences of justice and injustice, as well as different political ideologies. Methodists have represented most mainstream parties in elected assemblies. But we can be united in the acceptance of the principles, even if we don't yet fully agree over their application. There are, however, some positions that cross, quote, the limits of acceptable political ideology beyond which Christian sympathy must be withdrawn because our understanding of God is contradicted, for example, apartheid or the National Front. This is a quote from the Methodist Statement on Political Responsibility from 1995. And this position is reflected in Standing Order 13b and the requirement of Standing Order 050, that the preparation for candidates for membership shall include an introduction to the doctrines, disciplines and formal statements of the Methodist Church, including its belief that racism is a denial of the gospel. The principles do not themselves draw such lines, but will help with the identification of ideologies, policies or behaviours that are unacceptable. In the end, we must recall, as the Methodist Statement on Political Responsibility reminds us, that, however earnest, our efforts for justice will only ever be human and approximate picture of God's justice. Quote, the Christian community must face honestly its historical record. It is clear that the power of sin remains ever present in the church as in creation as a whole. It infects all relationships and social structures, distorting perception and breeding corruption, oppression, arrogance and unbridled selfishness. No political programme, therefore, can be equated with the coming Kingdom of God. 
The next part of this section invites us to go deeper with each of the principles in turn. The first principle. God made humans in the image of God, each worthy of equal value and dignity. The search for justice entails treating others with respect and may involve reclaiming lost worth. From the very beginning, the image of God is embedded into the biblical story as a key way of describing human identity. Genesis 1 verses 26 to 27 tells us three times that humanity is formed in God's image. Then God blesses this new human creation and declares it to be good. It is also significant that diversity is an inherent part of this identity. God creates humankind in the image of God, verse 27. It is not a particular people, gender, ability, ethnicity or social status that is created to bear the divine image, but all humankind. To recognise this image in all humans is inherently to treat all people with equal and utmost dignity and of equal and highest value. Anything else is a distortion of our relationship with God, or what we call sin. To elevate some is to find ourselves recasting our understanding of God in the image of some people. To reduce others to a lesser status is to treat God's image as unworthy of respect. The first outcome is idolatry. The second is a failure to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul and strength. If then our identity as the image of God is part of God's good creation, our failure to recognise that image in others or to treat people as being of unequal worth is a consequence of the fall. That is, it is an example of our human tendency to idolise our own ideas about God and to limit the scope of God's grace. The consequences of this are not limited to individual relationships. To fail to see the image of God in others results in the image of God being less clear in us. It is to act as though not only the other, but also we ourselves, are not bearers of God's image. In Jesus, we see the truest image of God remaining faithful to that image and recognising it in others. We see him restore worth to those considered worthless and take time to engage with humanity that bears the imprint of God's self. And we see Jesus treated as of no worth, executed in pain and humiliation on the cross, God's ultimate defeat of that which is evil and the promise of new life and new creation. And so the cross, a symbol of the human capacity for inhumanity, becomes instead a symbol of a new way of being, in which, through loving our neighbour as ourselves, the image of God can be seen more clearly in us and our worth can be restored. The second principle. God desires the flourishing of creation and human community within it. The search for justice does not diminish or limit the flourishing of others, but seeks to enable it. Creation is intrinsically good and God delights in it. 
Human beings are the focal point of the biblical account of creation in the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2. But all creation is interdependent. People are made for each other in Genesis, chapter 2, verse 18. Yet this cannot occur without the wider flourishing of the created order that includes all living things and the global ecosystem. Flourishing means the maximal development of one's potential and capabilities, the greatest use of the gifts we are all given. It is about having enough in order to thrive, the ability to live a good life, one that is meaningful and satisfying. It is not the same as having the freedom to do whatever one likes, but flourishing is about that environment which enables our greatest potential to be reached individually and collectively. It does not suggest that we all have the same potential, but that we are all of equal worth in the sight of God. Each one of us is uniquely gifted and has our own distinctive contribution to make. Theologically, the concept of the good life includes work and rest, as well as pursuits that are creative and allow free self-expression. Flourishing is about exploring and co-creating God's world and discovering these to be satisfying and enriching experiences. However, the waste or exploitation of God's gifts is not only sin against God, but represents injustice against others. The flourishing of creation needs to be understood carefully. Humanity is an integral part of God's created order. Creation's beauty, diversity, complexity and variety of species are a consequence of its flourishing, not the goal of it. All living things are one whole, and the destruction of one part, a habitat or a species, will often have serious implications for many others, in ways often unforeseeable. The flourishing of creation describes a situation in which the present and future of human beings and all living things are secured, in ways that respect the delicate balance between creature and environment. In principle, no one aspect of justice is more important than any other, and ideally the pursuit of one form of justice should not impair the advancement of any other nor lead to the diminishing of anyone. Justice, flourishing and diversity are all linked. In practice, however, we will always wrestle with competing priorities due to finitude and scarcity. But in the search for justice, we should always guard against the creation of injustices elsewhere. Yet not all loss is injustice. The achievement of justice can be costly for those who seek it and it can involve loss of privilege or reparations to those who have suffered. But only in the narrowest of interpretations can this be considered loss, for the gains far outweigh these, and open up possibilities of greater reconciliation, healing, peace and security for all, rather than for some. Justice will always enhance flourishing. It may place constraints on certain activities, but only on those that create unjust outcomes and thus would restrict the flourishing of others, neighbours and strangers in the future as well as the present. The third principle. 
God consistently shows a bias to people experiencing poverty and to those who are excluded. The search for justice must attend to those who live in poverty and those who are marginalised in other ways as a priority. The Bible reveals the infinite quality of divine love, so it becomes meaningless to compare God's love between peoples. And yet, the focus on God's bias to people experiencing poverty points to the Bible's revelation of God's chosen paradigm for living together in God-centred, justice-focused community. God requires us to share God's greater attention to those in poverty, because they suffer due to the structural injustices in the shape and values of society as a whole, which is skewed towards those with wealth. Moreover, their voices often go unheard. God engages with Abraham so that he may channel blessing to all the families of the earth. Genesis 12.3 Torah consistently highlights the need for Israel to remember its universal calling. The instruction to care for widows, aliens and orphans sits alongside teaching about debt relief and tithing to relieve poverty. The prophets condemn behaviours which abuse power and encourage their communities to develop their own strategies to resist oppression. The New Testament picks up on the same themes. John the Baptist advocates radical sharing with the poor in Luke 3.11. Paul encourages his congregations to give generously to his collection for those in need in Romans 15.26. James heavily criticises those who treat rich visitors differently from poor ones, James 1.1-7. The Gospels remind us that Jesus was not born with wealth or status. His teaching balances realism, you always have the poor with you, with radical visionary hope. He insists that people use their resources to benefit others in need and envisions banquets where the guests are the most marginalised. Other strands in the Bible's testimony sit less easily with this model. Prosperity is a contested word. Sometimes it is achieved through wickedness, for example, Psalm 73. But elsewhere it flows from righteousness, for example, Proverbs 13. And sometimes poverty is a mark of sin, Proverbs 10. Over against this, the story of Job directly confronts the claim of a causal link between poverty or suffering and sin. The direct link between behaviour and blessing fits poorly with an understanding of God's free grace and the so-called prosperity gospel is damaging precisely because it denies God's essential freedom to bless creation independently of anything we can do. However, contemporary interpreters should not discount the devastating impact of absolute poverty on human flourishing and how first-hand experience can shape theology in ways that may be unpredictable. At the centre of the Christian quest for justice is the Missio Dei, being challenged and amazed by what God is already doing in the world that God has made, and joining in. This leads to new ways of expressing God's bias to people experiencing poverty through prayerful collaboration with God's design for building just communities.
Contemporary readings of the Bible are shaped by recognition of the intrinsic, God-given value of individuals, irrespective of their socio-economic status. Some responses to poverty downplay this, potentially patronising people by doing good to them. Pastoral engagement focuses on working with people, recognising their agency and autonomy in achieving just outcomes. This is embedded in the biblical witness to an incarnate God with us. A far greater range of voices now engage in the interpretive conversation about biblical models of justice, with greater awareness of their own social location. The debate is enriched by contributions from people who have experienced injustice in their own lives. Alongside this, there is a fresh recognition of diversity in the voices of the Bible itself. For example, Sawana theologian Musa Dube edited Other Ways of Reading African Women and the Bible. Her contribution retells the story of the woman with the flow of blood as Mama Africa, racked by HIV, calling out to Jesus for healing while Native American theologian Laura Donaldson writes on Ruth's sister-in-law Orpah as a role model for her community, choosing to remain with her own traditions rather than assimilating to an alternative culture. The Bible challenges structural injustice, reflected in its critique of kings and their leadership, for example 1 Samuel 8 verse 9, and in ambivalence around empire. This takes contemporary readers far beyond a concern for individual acts of charity, as Christians seek directly to act against systemic injustice. We encounter the biblical imperative to steward creation and respond by addressing the structural injustice that has brought about the climate crisis. We push back against dehumanising treatment of refugees or trafficked individuals because of Scripture's teaching that all people are made in God's image. Core biblical emphases insist that we challenge injustice in our society as well as in our individual relationships. The fourth principle. God entrusts those with power with a special responsibility for upholding justice. Those seeking justice will encourage and challenge those with power to fulfil their vocation. Intrinsically, power is neutral. What matters is how power is used and its effects. Power is often best shared, but not always. It depends what kind of power we are talking about and the purpose for which it is being used. It is significant that in the Genesis account of creation, God gives power to human beings over other animals. The powerful, whether individuals or groups, have a greater capacity and responsibility to make a difference in people's lives and the systems we live under. But all share the responsibility in establishing justice. The biblical account shows clearly the expectation of the good ruler the one who has legitimate power over others. There are prophetic warnings against corrupt rulers who fail to be good shepherds to the people, and the proper use of power is exemplified in the figures of the shepherd king, most notably in the prophecies of Jeremiah 23, 1-4, 
and Ezekiel chapter 34. David stands out as a fine example of this. Yet his actions involving Bathsheba also display its corrupting aspect. Most contexts today do not have easy parallels with such a role, although the misuse of power throughout history has caused incalculable suffering and sadly continues to do so today. Power is often embodied in systems, structures and cultures, and this brings particular responsibilities and challenges. Sometimes the pursuit of justice involves forms of collective action that are different from individual responses. Jesus shows a radically different approach to the use of power through trust in God that shows, through love, how power can be liberating. He resists temptations to dominate and enables freedom through his healings, attention to the marginalised and, most of all, through his death and resurrection. The powerful have a greater influence than they often understand or perceive. They are sometimes unaware of their powers or the impact of their actions upon others and so need to be alerted to their particular responsibilities and led to a greater recognition of how their actions are experienced. A key aspect is helping people to see how power distorts perspectives. The powerful, therefore, require a humility of heart, as well as mind, to be challenged by those with less power, so that the justice becomes the product of co-creation rather than paternalism. In the pursuit of justice, power works best when shared, but because it is often contested, there needs to be a preferential option for those with less power. Power must not be abdicated through a reluctance to accept responsibility. The avoidance of power through timidity or sloth is just as much a sin as its improper use. The antidote to the misuse of individual power is found through proper humility and an increased critical understanding of a situation. The just use of power is a remedy against unjust systems through bringing about structural, political and economic change. Those seeking justice for themselves are rarely the powerful, but those denied the ability to effect change. Yet the pursuit of justice, like love, is the task of everyone, irrespective of status. Martin Luther King put it this way, Power is the ability to achieve purpose. In this sense, power is not only desirable, but necessary to implement the demands of love and justice. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. The fifth principle. God calls all people and nations actively to work for peace and justice. It is never just someone else's responsibility. We all have a part to play. The biblical account of human identity tells us that all people are made in God's image and likeness. If one of God's defining characteristics is justice, then this is a quality every person shares and can develop as they are transformed into the likeness of God. Jesus came to bring freedom and abundance of life for all through the life-giving spirit. In him, Christians are adopted into God's family, 
Christian identity thus has a multiple strand of active commitment to justice woven through it. However, age, culture, gender, ethnicity and ability, among other factors, make people different. Even where people intentionally push back against the artificial barriers this diversity can create, different perceptions of what justice look like can hinder solidarity. Those who campaign for justice must collaborate with the parallel work of others who come from different places but seek complementary outcomes in building just societies. This is likely to entail giving preference to voices speaking from experiences of acute injustice. There is no room to privilege the stance or choices of people with better access to resources, nor is it acceptable to work for the, quote, easy peace, singing the faith 719, which colludes with injustice. Common interest brings people together into groups at many levels, local, national or international. The solidarity of such groups can be hugely beneficial, especially where people are able to support one another and offer collective resistance to oppression, often with faith as a key driver. However, when groups are shaped by strong boundaries and clear demarcations between insiders and outsiders, their negative potential is sharply focused. Strong internal cohesion can sit alongside hostility to those outside, with a narrowly defined understanding of justice in relation only to the concerns of the in-group. This militates against justice for all, and potentially creates intense injustice. Baptism brings a transformative self-understanding. There is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28 The boundaries of self-selecting human grouping, with their ambivalent potential for justice-seeking, are transcended by shared allegiance to Christ and the shared goal of participating in God's justice. It therefore strengthens the missional push towards justice and freedom when the worldwide church's work for justice models collaboration and transcends internal, local, national or international boundaries. It is potentially catastrophic for the church's witness when national or denominational difference leads to competition or disagreement. The vision of collective responsibility for justice is both enriched and complicated by differing ideas within Christian tradition of what justice looks like for individuals, communities and nations. Despite possible tensions, there is capacity for renewal, transformation and liberation when Christians work together and seek to work with those of other faiths to resolve conflict through collaborative approaches, respecting the views of others and giving particular attention to voices from the margins. The sixth principle. God calls us to live in hope and in ways that reflect God's character and the pattern of God's kingdom. Thus seeking justice involves honesty and truth and may demand protest and resistance, restitution, forgiveness, reconciliation and ultimately transformation. Before we begin, there is a footnote under this principle, which reads, Kingdom is not an uncontested word, with its associations with a particular form of power, with some people preferring to speak of God's 
kingdom or commonwealth or realm. The word kingdom has been retained here, not uncritically, but both because it is a more familiar theological term, but also because the kingdom promised by God and modelled by Jesus turns human ideas of kingdoms upside down. The pursuit of justice begins with God. Justice is both God's work and God's very nature, and we are invited to participate in it. This means that seeking justice is both an imperative and a privilege for those who would seek to live according to God's ways. It is a call not only to intellectual ideas about justice or hopes about a just future, but to words and actions in this world at this time. God's word became flesh in Jesus who turned the world's upside down values the right way up again, proclaiming a kingdom where the powerful are to act as servants to the powerless. Those who are usually ignored are listened to and given agency and relationships are healed. We are invited to speak God's word, but more than that, to be doers of the word, not merely hearers, James 1.22. We are called not just to words, but to deeds. If our focus is solely on words, we risk becoming hypocrites. But further, we are called not just to deeds, but to a way of life. We must not simply refrain from unjust acts, but be proactive in our justice seeking. If God is so proactive in promoting the good of humanity, then followers of Christ are surely called to a way of life that imitates this proactivity. We are not just to refrain from injustice, but actively to seek peace and pursue it in all our encounters, in our attitudes and in our participation in the proclamation and enactment of the kingdom. We too are called to live in ways that upend the accepted values of the world. If we, as individuals or as members of institutions, have power, we are called to use it to serve. If we hold power unjustly, we are called to repent. If we benefit where historic injustice lingers in modern inequality, we are called to make restitution. And if our actions have caused or perpetuated injustice, we are called to listen carefully to uncomfortable truths and to respond with humility. In moving beyond deeds to a way of life that is oriented towards the hope of a new heaven and earth, we recognise that seeking justice is not about one-off acts of goodness, but about our whole attitude. As we seek to become more Christ-like, letting the same mind be in us that was in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. Philippians 2, 5-7 And because we will inevitably get it wrong at times, it is about constantly learning, trying again, and in seeking justice, seeking also our own transformation. Romans 12.2 There are many ways in which these principles can be further explored and brought into dialogue with current injustices. The next section offers some priorities for action and begins to make links with the principles for justice identified in this section. 
This is the end of part five of the podcast. Part six will introduce the five priorities for justice, poverty, climate change, refugees, discrimination and peace. And it will go through each one in turn and finally recommend a way for taking these forward. Thank you for joining us.